and welcome back to another episode of Paideia Today. As always, I am Dr. Bill Friesen, and I am joined here, as always, by my colleague, Dr. Scott Masson. And today we are going to try something a little bit new. We're going to talk about not one, but two writers. And specifically here, I mean A.E. Hausman and Thomas Hardy. We're taking them in as a package deal. And we're going to be discussing primarily their poetry, as well as, of course, the men themselves and the cultural milieu to which they were responding. And we're going to start today with Thomas Hardy. Um, Scott, I believe you have a reading ready to go of his most commonly anthologized poem, The Darkling Thrush. Um, if you want to just take us through a quick reading of that now so we get a flavor for Hardy's approach to his world. Okay. Uh, the Darkling Thrush for our readers. This thrush is a songbird. So The Darkling Thrush by Thomas Hardy. I lent upon a coppice gate when frost was specter gray and winter's drags make desolate the weakening eye of day. The tangled bind stems scored the sky like strings of broken lyres and all mankind that haunted nigh had sought their household fires. The land's sharp features seemed to be the centuries corpse outlent, his crypt the cloudy canopy the wind his, his death lament. The ancient pulse of germ and birth was shrunken hard and dry, and every spirit upon earth seemed fervorless as I. At once a voice arose among the bleak, tweaks, bleak twigs overhead in a full-hearted evensong of joy illimited. An aged thrush, thrush frail, gaunt, and small, in blast the ruffled plume had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom so little cause for carolings of such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things afar or nigh around that i could think there trembled through his happy good night air some blessed hope whereof he knew and i was unaware mm. Yes, if you have read your Thomas Hardy in the past, there's a good chance that you have uh, first encountered him or encountered him most significantly in his uh, formidable novels. He's famous, of course, uh, to uh, modern readers primarily as a novelist, one of the greatest novelists of all times. You will also know that the novels of Thomas Hardy are a byword for gloom, despair, and hopelessness. Mm. Uh, in fact, he is rather the hyperbole that I mentioned when I'm trying to really underscore the despair of the at the end of the Victorian period and as we move into the 20th century and tor towards World War I. And of course, his poetry is of a similar ilk. Um, in fact, one of the things that is most distinctive about Thomas Hardy's poetry is that you simply will not find any glimmer of hope for anything as you're reading through it. You will encounter beauty. You will encounter deep contemplation. You will encounter art. Uh, and it's uh, the manner in which it impinges upon culture and these sorts of things. But Thomas Hardy doesn't really strain after hope. And he makes that actually explicit at the end of The Darkling Thrush. The thrush, the aged thrush, knows something I don't know that allows its song to be full of hope the way mine is utterly bereft thereof. And this speaks, this is one of the reasons uh, I'm keen on talking about Hardy at the end of this period, the fin de siècle, 
between 1890 and 1914, because I really think that Hardy and Hausman really captured the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age in their poetry. And it, it does, they do a very good job of these sorts of things. Um, this is also going to be the case with A.E. Hausman. A.E. Hausman is deeply concerned, much more so with beauty, but again, you will find that his poetry is pretty well entirely bereft of hope. It's a celebration, if you will, and an exploration of despair, as much of Hardy's work is as well. Um, what more do we want to say about Hardy, the man himself? He was born to middle-class parents, so this mm -hmm. is a, an important distinction. His father was a stonemason. Yeah, that's not um, middle class in Britain, that's working class. Yeah, that's getting down there. Uh, Thomas Hardy himself um, went on to become an architect. He was very good at um, his work. Um, Thomas Hardy is also notable for having an incredibly strong work ethic uh, and has been accused in the past of a man who would work himself absolutely to the bone without being able to really articulate why and sometimes without much product to show at the end of his hard work. You will see that his novels are, of course, as I've already mentioned, extremely long. There's a lot of work to be done. They are, by anybody's estimation, superbly well-written. Mm -hmm. But what we have to remember here also is that Thomas Hardy didn't think of himself first and foremost as a novelist, or at least he didn't think that his, um, his ability to write prose was as good as his ability to write poetry. He thought his poetry was more important. So this kind of lines him up with a number of other authors we've looked at so far. And the tricky thing with both Hardy and Hausman, I'm not sure how much of that came through with your reading of The Darkling Thrush here, uh, is that both of these men are mind-bendingly good craftsmen of poetry. And this oftentimes is overlooked. If you begin to really take apart any of their poems at the level of craft, you will be dazzled by the sheer amount of ingenuity, clever thinking, dem uh, demonstrated skill that has gone into these seemingly short, easy, mellifluous compositions, such as the Darkling Thrush. And we don't have time to do that. And it's not really the sort of uh, thing that Paidea does today. But if we did stop to linger over the first couple of stanzas of The Darkling Thrush, we could unpack a lot of stuff that's going on there with his clever use of assonance and uh, consonance, his use of alliteration, uh, his uh, playing off of sprung rhythms and hypermetrics and stuff of this sort here. Mm -hmm. But he does it so well that it just seems to slide past you smoothly until you actually stop and really look at it. And I think this is one of the reasons that a lot of modern readers don't appreciate the sheer quality of poetry that they're reading when they're reading Hardy or Houseman, because it looks in some sense easy and spontaneous when it is anything but. Both Hardy and even more to the point, A.E. Houseman were men who were known to revise their work continuously. So they were very much about the craft of polishing poetry. And this is the case of what we find over here. Is there anything you want to add at this point, Dr. Masson? Uh, well, I think you touched on many of the main ideas here. I, I do think it's really interesting. I mean, both you and I uh, see something, um, at least from previous conversations, see something uh, tremendously significant in the First World War. To some degree, the death of Western civilization happens in that period. Um, and so it's easy to attribute the death to the battlefield itself. Uh, and obviously that can't be understated. In fact, it would be almost impossible to understate that. So it's, 
you know, a, a four-year war of attrition in which millions die over a few miles uh, in trench warfare uh, for reasons that seem in, in hindsight almost inexplicable, um, other than, you know, certain treaties that were entered upon the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and so forth, and then the whole war plunging into, uh, world plunging into war for the first time. Um, you can trace those in your history classes, but it doesn't quite give you the uh, explanation for why it was pursued with such ferocity and with such uh, zeal really on all sides with a sense of optimism about the quick outcome of that war uh, because of progress. Largely, each power thought that it would put a swift end to its opponents because of the technology available to it. And there were sermons preached from pulpits at the time about the the goodness of the cause, etc. Um, but the despair that's there is already there before the First World War comes. It's encapsulated in a book by Oswald Spengler, The Decline of the West, or The Downfall of the Occident. It's, it's a German book, it's translated. Um, and uh, it, it first appears in 1918 and is revised and so forth. But that, again, that's published right at the end of the First World War, and the seeds for that uh, are sown much earlier, I think. And there's this pervasive sense of gloom that is already there in this Edwardian period. So this period between the end of Victoria's reign and, and 1910, just on the cusp of the, of the First World War. And I do think, uh, and this is, I asked you explicitly, why are we looking at these two poets at this particular time? I mean, what's the, what's the link uh, between the two? And also, why are they after wild and before Conrad, who actually is a contemporary of theirs. Um, and you explained, and I, I can see the logic in it. It is this pervasive sense of despair uh, that is there in this period. And, and I think some of the poems that we'll talk about reflect upon uh, some of the features of that. So in the poem here, which is really interesting, The Darkling Thrush, which most people have encountered if they've encountered any Hardy poems, I hear an allusion to uh, Keats' uh, Ode to a Nightingale, uh, because there's this one line darkling, I listen, um, and there to the song of a nightingale who seems to reflect or symbolize immortality for Keats. There's no immortality here in, in uh, Hardy, and that's interesting. Uh, Keats at least has a sense of poetic immortality and therefore hope. Uh, that really, in some sense, makes Keats an extension of what we see in the classical age uh, for all of their um, same sense of fatalism, which I think characterizes Hardy's novels. If you read Tess of the D'Urbervilles or, or Jude the Obscure, so his last two novels is probably his most famous ones. It's bleak and dark, and, uh, and the fatalism is oppressive. We don't find that in the classical age. Uh, for all of their fatalism, their sense of the cyclical recurrence of events, the eternal recurrence, we don't get the despair that we, we hear in Hardy and, and we hear in Hausmann. And to some degree, we are already hearing in Nietzsche as well. Um, so and that, so what, I, what I would wanna say about this is that post-Christian uh, determinism, is a very different animal than we find in the classical world, a point that C.S. Lewis also makes clear. So the current 
or the return of a sort of a paganism is not a return to the old paganism it's a new paganism and it is marked by despair and anger uh, often as well hostility and uh, that's not there in the ancient world uh, there's a sense of victory and and immortality to be gained through through victory that's not here now no i tell my students uh, if you are going to read uh, the novels particularly of thomas hardy try not to read them in february and january <laughs> um, they are conducive to a nihilism and despair and suicidal impulses the way few other things are and hardy's the despair of hardy's uh, fatalistic novels to me almost reaches hyperbolic lengths if i'm really trying to be hyperbolic i'll say it's as bad as a, a thomas hardy novel or something like this um and those who've read Hardy get what I'm talking about. But the, this little poem here encapsulates some of this as well. And I, I want to come back to that first point that you really raised and underscored there, because I think that that's a very valuable point to make, which is that the roots causes in terms of cultural attitudes of the nightmare of World War I do indeed seem to predate in some very interesting ways the war itself. Usually when we trace back... Uh, destruction of Western culture, we trace directly to the war and then we stop there. But that war could not have happened had a, a lot of pervasive attitudes not been in place. And of course, one of the best places to track that always is in the literature. And I think we do encounter it in the literature. Um, so this period between about 1890 and 1914 is oftentimes characterized by historians as a period, as we've already said, of uh, fatalism and despair. If there are watchwords to look for in this period, these are there. It's also a period of brute pragmatism, this notion of we just have to do it, whether we like it or not, whether we know why we're doing it fully anymore or not, we just have to do it. Partly, it's, for, it's partly under the, the mantra of progress, right? But the progress mm -hmm. towards what is unclear. Well, we see the same language crop up again and again in the 20th century, and we're seeing it crop up again right now as you and I speak. It doesn't go away. And one of the points here, one of my takeaways is that this attitude can be very, very dangerous. Mm -hmm as it was back in their day. It's also a period of tremendous cynicism. Um, a lot of people don't realize this. They look at those old sort of choppy black and white 1914 uh, movie recordings of people, uh, of a young men marching off to war amidst cheering crowds and the flowers are flying and they're signing up uh, to for military service, not knowing what they're going to get into. There is that attitude, but if one thinks that that's the only attitude, the sense of nationalistic jubilation at this period, you'd be very, very, very much mistaken if you sit down with the politicians, with the artists, with the economists, um, with the thinkers in the universities, you would encounter not just a different, but in many ways, an antithetical attitude to what you're seeing on those old black and whites. It's yeah. not at all the case. Yeah, no, that's um, a great point. Yeah, and so Hardy is actually, I think, tapped into something here. He doesn't know why he does what he does, but to his credit at the end of this little poem, he doesn't discount or mock the darkling thrush hurling its song out upon the darkness of things. By the way, uh, I don't know if the audience picked it up from the language of the poem itself. Hardy is writing this right at the end of the century, 19, uh, as we're moving into 1900. So the, he's, he's investigating and contemplating the death of something, yes. the birth of something new. And it's not the birth of something good. Uh, it's something he doesn't fully understand, but he's full of foreboding and despair. The darkling thrush, on the other hand, sings a song of, as it were, that is attached to nature, it's attached to yesteryear. But this is, you're right, this is a new attitude we're encountering here. 
this is not merely classical because classical thinking and classical writers could certainly be brutally pragmatic absolutely they could but there's always a counterpoint in that either there's immortality to be achieved via the works uh, of days and hands or there's some kind of immortality at some kind of philosophical level or that there's something there poetic fame yeah there is a mixture of bafflement and hopelessness in these writers here that we're looking at and by the way i could have we could have picked other writers also there's a number of writers who in the english literary world do not fit comfortably into either victorian or modernist which is the next phase modernist literary categories they're uncomfortable all over the place these include obviously houseman and hardy houseman uh, is really not a comfortable fit for victorian sensibilities if you've read browning and tennyson and then all of a sudden you pick up um houseman you'll be baffled this is a this is not just a different man this is a man writing from a very different context and you'd be right uh hardy also isn't a perfectly comfortable fit he's often described as a victorian novelist but again he dies in 1928 um and and he is not idle in those years between um so he too is a bridging character but I, we could have gone for gerald and, Manley and houseman Hawking. dies in 1936 so yes he dies even later yes quite right and uh, so we could have gone for Gerald Manley Hopkins. He's a bridging writer. We could have gone for playwright like George Bernard Shaw, a very interesting bridging character. Um, so there's a number of these individuals. They don't fit comfortably anywhere else. And in my own mind, I tend to think of these as writers fitting chronologically into anywhere between about 1920 all the way back to about 1890, where they're kind of, it's their age of Florowit. Um, so we're seeing in the darkling thrush we're seeing hardy mourn the passing of a bygone age and he's all alone so he's, he's also stressing another thing that's going to become a light motif in the 20th century loneliness and alienation an enormous sense of anomie which inhabits the writer's imagination and this writer is not kind of alone he's really alone and unlike the solitary status which is celebrated by for instance the romantics because there's kind of a, a lonely beauty to some other wandering off in the middle of nowhere by themselves. Wordsworth gets into this on numerous occasions. This solitariness is of a very dark nature. He is alone, alone, alone. And, and it's connected in the very first stanza to the death of culture. Uh, so let me just say something about this. So he mentions very first line, I leant upon a coppice gate. What's a coppice? Well, a coppice is a managed wood. It's it's it, an encircled, as it were, by a, a fence. So this is not the Canadians. When they think of forest, they think of the wild. Uh, we don't think of it as the wild, but in in Europe, this would be the wild, and they have no wilderness there. All trees, if they have them, have been very carefully cultivated and grown and managed to the point where they are now artfully displayed around the countryside. There are some forests, uh, but there are very few ancient forests left. And the coppice is certainly not one. So the coppice gate is a place where nature has been managed and put behind bars, as it were. And frost was specter gray. There's a, so the, uh, the, the, the specter of death there upon uh, on it. And the winter's dregs, dregs made desolate the weakening eye of day, the tangled bind stems, so the bind stems, uh, of, of a plant, a climbing plant. So it, and it has been uh, put there by uh, a gardener uh, are like strings of broken lyres. The lyre, again, a symbol of music and culture and art. Um, and so what has been cultivated has grown unruly 
gotten out of hand or is now simply fallen into disrepair. So this is the thematic intro to the poem. And I think you are correct in saying that this poem is not only about a darkling thrush, it's, it's about the culture in general. And that's why it's such an important poem. It's reflecting upon a sense of not just uh, a loss of faith in Christ or, or theological things. It's the, the sense of despair in the culture itself, that there is no culture left. And these, remember, this is by enormously cultured men. In both cases, they're classicists. In the case of Hausmann, uh, he becomes a professor of Latin at Cambridge. Yes. Um, famous uh, for their literary gifts, and it's so enormously cultured in, in a sense. Uh, most of uh, Hardy's poems uh, are the, the gleaming spires of Oxford and so forth. But um, there is a, nonetheless a sense of despair in culture, that culture is not going to save us. And this is interesting because, again, if, if as, as Christians, we speak of cultural Christianity um, in, in and around the early 20th century. But <laughs> amongst the poets, there is no belief in this culture. There's no faith left in the culture. Culture is not going to save us, say the poets, which is interesting because in liberal Protestantism, there's the opposite belief being evidenced now those of us who are not liberal in our theology uh, are not going to agree with them and think this is rather ridiculous. But nonetheless, it's interesting to hear voices from outside the Christian faith, quite explicitly so, uh, expressing a great deal of skepticism about how the culture is going to save us. Yeah, one of the things that is, well, there's an idea that is constantly batted around by both Houseman and Hardy and many of their contemporaries is this growing skepticism about religion, generally speaking, Christianity more pointedly and very specifically a belief in Christ and things of this sort in the Gospels. Um, and it all culminates with your classic and at this point rather cliched protest. How could an omnipotent good God allow such a brutal world? How do we explain that? And this was a question which Hardy addressed in conversation and to some extent in his literature as well. Hardy himself was ostensibly an Anglican, um, but uh, he was not really committed in any meaningful way to um, a church life, uh, had no real interest in it. Um, and when he encountered the big problems of life, particularly the problem of suffering, cruelty and death and how a good God could allow such things, he hits a wall and he's baffled. And he makes this explicit in a couple of conversations that were recorded. And uh, he said, I simply cannot explain how the God you're describing could allow this kind of a world. Conrad is going to get into this kind of crisis. Uh, in his own much more healthy and productive way, Hopkins gets into this crisis. Houseman takes on this problem head on. They're all talking about this. Um, and it makes you wonder what has gone wrong with your culture, because uh, obviously a, a living, meaningful, coherent religion is a necessary part of a thriving culture. Well, this is gone. I it's think it's, part, it's in part because nature has been decoupled from any moral sense. So Tennyson's famous phrase that nature read in tooth and claw with Raven, that's a picture of, of Darwinian nature. It is there. It is uh, lacking in any moral direction whatsoever. Uh, it is brutally pragmatic in propagating the, the, the fittest, but without any uh, sense of goodness attached to the fittest. So that, that I think is 
at least a partial explanation of that general phenomenon? Yeah. Um, I should have mentioned also last, uh, during the last podcast here. When we were talking about Wild. Yeah, when we were talking about Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde nevertheless had a a more hopeful engagement with this problem. Uh, Wilde, some people don't know this here, but Wilde toyed around with the notion of becoming Catholic uh, for a while, and he followed particularly closely uh, John Henry uh, Cardinal Newman. Mm. Um, he never did obviously convert to Catholicism, but it was an idea that interested him. And Newman, of course, is giving cogent explanations for our situatedness in the world from a Christian perspective, albeit a Catholic one. Um, these men don't have that. Hardy doesn't have that. Houseman doesn't have that. Um, Hardy's agitated on good days by it. Houseman, his response is rather different. We'll come to him in just a bit. Um, but when he was asked about uh, the problem of evil in the world, which I just mentioned here, uh, by uh, he, uh, he was asked this question, how do you explain that? I, I, I'm trying to grapple with this set of friend of Hardy's to him. And Hardy's response was um, simply to hand him a copy of Origins of the Species. And that basically will settle your argument. And sundered from clear, solid, rational, theological discourse on some of these big problems, we see Hardy do something that we're going to see a lot of an extremely intelligent poets do in the 20th century. He becomes ever more taken up with mysticism and what you and I would anachronistically de describe as new age culty stuff and what have you. Seances, um, all manner of things. I mean, the strangest yeah, things. Weird, for lack of a better word, juvenile approaches to religious problems. Um, and you ask yourself, how can such a sophisticated cultured man be indulging such farcical thinking and responses to serious religious questions and spiritual questions in life? Um, and my response to that is a very long-winded. I'm not going to get into it at this point here. Okay, but they have, <laughs> yeah, they, they have rejected. I mean, they have rejected the the traditional thinking on these matters, given over to to a combination of despair um, and bafflement. You encountered this again and again. Bafflement. I cannot explain it. We're going to see this chance randomness. There's no purpose or design to be seen in any actions. No, none whatsoever. There's no hope. There's no purpose. There's no value. There's no meaning. Remember, we're moving in relativist directions here as well. Um, and this is where the, that train is picking up a lot of speed and a lot of momentum. Um, why did World War I happen? And in the wake of World War I, a lot of people will say that's a meaningless question because it's a meaningless universe. Why would you ask that? Um, millions died for no reason. Why ask why? Um, that's just the nature of mankind. And there's a and a mass despair, as well as individual despair, seems to take hold at the beginning of the 20th century, um, which, again, informs a lot of the outcomes of other things that follow on as a knock-on effect here. But my point here is that people like Houseman and Hardy are harbingers of things to come. Yes. Uh, that's, that's very much to my point here. Um, so that's, why, that's why we're looking at them at this point. They fall between after the arts for art art for art's sake aesthete uh, uh wild and the the modernists whom we will see coming up um and he uh, we, we wanted wild there because of the for the reasons we stated last week as a foundation for the modernist project detaching beauty from goodness and truth which uh are inseverable 
in past ages, but from here on become almost axiomatic that matters of beauty have nothing to do with goodness or truth. And, yeah. and how could you suggest otherwise? And yeah. the, the reason, I mean, the question is, why did this war happen? It happened for nothing. I take that as almost a statement. It happened for nothing. It happened because there's nothing there. There's an absence in, in a vacuum into which people rush headlong, lacking a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. Uh, and and so for the, the cry for king and country is, I guess, a meaning and a purpose that will be sufficiently um, provocative to drive many to do what probably seemed a rather insane thing to do, certainly on the mass scale, and certainly for the length of time that it was, uh, what the war was waged. Uh, and at the end of it, they picked up the pieces and then went at it again. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people, if you read the war poets who are running in the immediate wake of World War One or the Great War, as they would have known it, um, you're struck We're not going to read sense. them, Bill. We're not going to read them. So let's say no, 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 no. Yeah, sure. One of the things that strikes you immediately about many of them, not all of them, but many of them, um, is that the question isn't why did we fight this war? Why? Why did this mass slaughter? This this vision out of Dante's Inferno occur? It's not. You, you don't ask why did it happen. Uh, considering the fact that they had nothing left culturally in which they believed in, the quite real question is, why not? Uh, why not just murder millions and millions and millions of people to no apparent end? Well, there is no such thing as, as ends anymore. And some of this is facilitated by, as you say, the sundering of good from evil. Uh, sorry, uh, good from beauty. Um, good or ethics, along with uh, the reasons, the values, the meaning and <laughs> purpose that comes along with the good, that gets chopped off. The artists focus exclusively on the beautiful and at times even spurn and denigrate the good just to emphasize the fact that their art has nothing to do with the good. It has only to do with the beauty. Well, beauty, no, goodness atrophies as a cultural concept in this art. It dwindles away. It becomes the provenance of mere lawyers, um, thinkers in the ivory tower who, who are inconsequential. Um, politicians will posture on that front, uh, but it doesn't mean anything. The, the art that actually moves you powerfully is purely beautiful art sundered from the goodness. And so this is the reason that in the 20s and 30s, people like um, Theodore Adorno can come along and say that um, beauty, actually, no, he went, he took it one step further. And so, so track this here. He says beauty has been evacuated from the advance of art. And if you actually stop and think about the individual concepts of that sentence, that's quite a statement. Okay, so beauty now is gone too. So awesome. goodness, goodness was destroyed back there by the aesthetes. Uh, now beauty is gone as well. And you're also implying that art is advancing. Remember that when something advances, it can be denigrating and falling into decay just as much as it could be rising into something good. And, so, then yeah. and then it is he who says that after Auschwitz, no more poetry. Yeah, yeah, His absolutely. Correct quote. He's being, um, Adorno's statement is being set up. That's my point here. It's being yeah. set up by writers like this. It's being given eloquence, weight, power, momentum, and authority by writers like this. So Adorno can say something so mind-bending uh, for very good reasons. For very good reasons. And uh, concurrent with this, or at least springing out of it, then comes the philosophical movement that we call nihilism, which is literally an adherence to nothing. And in that, the, the West bends further towards the East 
where where religions are predicated on nothingness, uh, the absence of being. So it moves a long way. How far away? Well, <laughs> how can you measure a distance from something to nothing? Uh, I don't know, but it goes for it goes to the absolute antithesis of what it had once uh, represented, and becomes very much uh, Zen or Buddhist in its inclinations. And it's again not without. Um, moment or uh, interest that uh, Buddhism and Eastern religions become increasingly popular in the West. Uh, they become plausible. They become increasingly plausible and meaningful. Well, why are they meaningful? In a sense, because they they symbol uh, they symbolize meaninglessness. Yes, the vanity of the world's projects. There's not there. It's a charade. The life that we live is not the real thing. The real thing is nothing. You make a very, very important point here, I think, because you're right. As we move, especially into the 20s and 30s, we're going to see an obsession with Eastern philosophy and religion. Um, you've got a bunch of people who get into this. T.S. Eliot plays with it. Ezra Pound goes all in on this uh, as well. Um, but a number of really significant individuals, Hesse, really. In, in Germany, I mean, there are many German writers uh, certainly inclined that way. Uh, yeah. It's a long so list, actually. Yeah, and, and this is the case in France, this is the case in the United States as well. This is, this is a big pervasive movement, but it's not, and this is the key point I think that you're making here, at least in my view, which is that artists and thinkers are not being drawn to Eastern philosophy and religion because it offers them something which satisfies um, that which is no longer being supplied by Christianity. It's not like this is going to give us something more meaningful and purposeful and uh, fulfilling um, the way Christianity once did. No, that's not happening. It's because those philosophies and religions actually ape the nihilism and emptiness. It, they, they're basically yes. celebrations of where the Western culture has landed. So we're Correct. just going to embrace the nothing. That's what we're going to embrace. And you see they're, they're Eliot, symbolic. Yes. And T.S. Eliot uh, does this with um, Dadism. And Ezra Pound does this with Buddhism, but we see also in the actual uh, amongst painters, we see the same sort of thing being celebrated by oh, yes. the Dalis and the Picassos and the people who are coming out like this. You, you ask, you know, what is this all about? This seems very nihilistic because it is. It's exactly yeah, what and, it is. and you will even see it. You mentioned painting. There's an increasing uh, move away from beauty towards outright what we would previously called ugliness, an embrace yes. of ugliness, or an absence of form even. Mm -hmm. At once, there's a, so there's an obsession with form in, in the in the sort of the Dadaist movement, as you called it, or uh, in, in even in the early Picasso. But as things go on, we move to the point where really we get art as a blank canvas, um, as an expression of the cultural ideal of at that point, the cultural elite who are no longer even remotely connected with Christianity, and they've moved away from the idea of the Logos, uh, Jesus being the Logos of God, the Word of God, uh, being the organizing principle of all things as well. There being a logic and a meaning and a purpose to it. We've moved yeah. far away from that. Now the organizing principle of uh, ultimate reality is the absence, the void, uh, the nothingness. And this is that what lends it it's it's characteristically dark and even yes. desperate features which will be addressed in the writers i think that we'll look at at the end of this series uh, tolkien and lewis because they're very, very much a counterpoint to the dominant uh, responses to it um but but still 
um, and and so and need to be seen in the light of that, which is why we're looking at them at the end. Yeah, on a somewhat lighter note, I should mention here that when you mentioned this adoration of nihilism and the growth of the philosophy of nihilism, it always puts me in line in mind of the the line by those German nihilists who show up in the movie The Big Lebowski, screaming, "We believe in nothing," as if somehow this is a slogan. I always found that funny. And also, if you uh, want to have a look at the uh, Monty Python competitive Thomas Hardy novel composition sketch, it's very, very funny, um, where you've got a cheering crowd in the background and Thomas Hardy is in the foreground and he's writing the, and then he takes it out and you got sports commentators talking in the back. And anyway, so you can have fun with Hardy if you're imaginative enough. Indeed. Um, Though I'm sure that uh, Hardy, by the way, was known to be completely socially dysfunctional. You take him <laughs> to parties and what have you. You try to show him that he's the opposite of Oscar. Surely Wilde. not. <laughs> and he would just stand there with his wife Dowerly in a corner, and you try to have a conversation with him, and he would give you monosyllabic responses or nothing at all. Uh, and it wasn't because he was surly or a misanthrope or anything like this. It was just because he's had zero social skills um by the way I, I also as another sidebar point here uh he had a long and generally unhappy marriage to his wife she died and then he married his secretary for a short contented marriage um and if you go to england today uh, if you go to saint paul's go to poet's corner you'll find that uh, thomas hardy is buried there uh his ashes at least uh, but he requested that his heart be cut from his dead body and buried with his first wife so uh, his heart is wherever that is. Interesting side note, I thought. <laughs> well, thank you for that. <laughs> We're being morbid, so we may as well. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. You've done well <laughs> on that. Um, did we want to talk more about Hardy or did we want to shift gears and talk a little bit about Hausman? Why not talk about Hausman unless you want to speak about the convergence of the twain, which is on the, ah, yes. which is on the loss of the Titanic. I mean, it's... I don't want to dwell on it too long, but it is interesting this, uh, I mean, and, and people will know just because of pop culture about the significance of the Titanic, the great symbol of progress, uh, this, uh, this cruise liner built in Belfast, I mentioned that because it's the 100th anniversary of the Republic, uh, or not the Republic, but, but of the uh, of Northern Ireland today. Uh, but it was uh, built there, the unsinkable Titanic, who on her maiden voyage then hits an iceberg and goes down. It doesn't bottom. just go down, it goes down with some of the richest Europe's elite on board. So it takes it takes quite a swath out of uh, the cultured elite of Europe. Um, this is I'm not going to read the poem because it's uh, going to take a little, a little bit too long here, but I will talk a little bit about what it is. The twain means the two, and the two come together. What are the two? One of them obviously is the Titanic. It is the greatest realization of human science and technology seen yet to date. It is spectacular. You walk down to the docks and it towers above you, this giant gleaming uh, vehicle, um, taking people, progressing people forward into the future, as well as, of course, literally across the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. um, so it is seen in adulatory, celebratory terms, uh, as a symbol of shining, towering, epic, godlike progress of the Victorian era. And its first time out, as everyone knows, I'm sure, it cracks into an iceberg which sends her to the bottom in icy waters and kills masses and masses and masses of people on board her. The other thing of the twain is, of course, the iceberg. While man was constructing the Titanic over here in Belfast, 
up there in the Arctic Circle or wherever, God was constructing another vehicle, the iceberg that will slay the Titanic. Um, and in some sense, this is uh, your classic um, refutation of the vanity of human wishes. This is why, uh, you know, uh, we're brought low by the gods again and again. Countless, and again. countless poems written about the Titanic. Uh, yes. And this is one of the most famous, having said that. Um, and so God builds his ship up there. You can build your ship down here and we'll see how this plays out. So this again is, but of course, Hardy doesn't mean God in the usual no, literal no, no. sense. God is some kind of amorphous concept of creation and nature and a purposeless purpose and all this kind of stuff. And this thing comes along and it does what Hardy's the, God the does. The spinner of the years, he speaks of God uh, in this, you know, sort of fatalistic fatalistic term yeah yeah the skein of time and events and things like this mm -hmm. uh but the point here is that like nature uh, which is kind of indistinguishable from hardy's god it's a killer that's what it is it's an entropic destroyer of worlds it's a planet smasher mm -hmm. um and that's what that's what nature does and there is no hope in the face of brutal killing entropic nature we saw in Beowulf, they, they mourned the loss of beautiful things and beautiful relationships and beautiful cultures and beautiful societies to the killing world. But the author of that had hope because he was speaking back into an age, which in some senses bore similarity to Hardy's age. There is no hope in the face of entropic nature. And in, uh, the author says, uh, actually, uh, there is. And here's actually how it works. And it's actually more plausible than your explanation of the world and beingness. Here, nobody answers back to Hardy. Nobody answers back to the iceberg. Nobody answers back to the killing dynamics, the destroy, the uh, the all destructive nature of nature. Um, and in that spirit, we sail forward into the future, into the twentieth century, and the nightmares that await us. So, in the dark ages, which the Enlightenment castigated as not only dark culturally, but dark in the sense of despairing and futile. We found more optimism and hope uh, than we find in the progressive late 19th, early 20th century, where we uh, are on the really at the cusp of Western civilization in some ways before it dies a death on the battlefields of Europe. Uh, and yet we see in the poets an anticipation of that despair already uh, setting in there and really being expressed in particularly uh, the, the, the reason this poem becomes, or the, the theme of the poem becomes so important is because pe people see terrific symbolism in the fall of the Titanic in a yes. way that, that would probably not have uh, occurred to previous ages. There was so much invested in this idea of the Titanic and, and its alleged unsinkable nature uh, and the actual convergence of the twain, the two, the iceberg and the liner uh, really reflected and symbolized the despair uh, and the lack of hope in culture that they felt while at the same time feeling relentlessly bound to advance the culture. Mm -hmm. and, and my my take on this is that there's a sort of a, an anti-God push in civilization and, 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 and concurrent with this is as well, the, the, uh, the growth of great cities throughout the 19th and throughout the 20th century, it really picks up mm -hmm. cities which have always been opposed to God uh, in, in scripture um, and, and in their own um, 
aims to satisfy human life, there's a sort of a, a uh, an opposition to everything good and beautiful and, and right. Um, it's it's often not explicitly mentioned, but it's certainly implicit at all times, and it and at times it becomes most strongly articulated. But anyway, I think this poem is a great poem as well, the convergence of the twain. Uh, I just wanted to mention it. Yeah, no, I want to riff off of something you said there, because again, I think you said something very valuable, which is that um, another one of these motifs that gets studied and mourned in the 20th century is um, the squalid, decadent urbanization of the Western imagination. Uh, T.S. Eliot in particular picks up on this. Uh, he does not like what the city does to the mind of the poet. Uh, not one little bit. He thinks it is absolutely sterile, barren, dead, corrupting. We've seen this idea also in other forms from you know people like Rousseau and what have you took it down very sketchy directions. But there is something to that. And that just put me in mind of an Aristotelian assertion way back in the day, which was that the best citizen to function in a free, wholesome, healthy democracy is a citizen farmer. He was very emphatic about that point. And then that got picked up by many, many later thinkers. And they didn't say that arbitrarily. And they didn't say that because they were romantics. Um, they liked the way a farmer had to think about reality. He was connected uh, to the world. It was under his connected feet. Connected to the world. He has to be competent. He has no choice. Um, he cannot be, as the Nazis would later say, a useless mouth. Um, he had to have skills. When he hit a crisis, he himself had to fix it. Um, a lot of people, if they've never lived on the land, don't know how much problem solving you do on any given day. You have to think your way through puzzle after puzzle after puzzle. That does something to you over time, and it does something to you over generations. And then when you come to voting, thinking about the issues that are before your government, the policies, the social policies, the military policies, the economic policies, that transfers in very workable ways into very, very healthy voting, thinking, and participation in a free democracy. Sustainable activities then things yes. that are yeah and the romans were huge on this and this is why in the united states you have sometimes a small populations of rural voters with equal representation to large populations of urban voters yeah, the americans knew this from their, they, they were riffing off what the romans thought about this and then they worked it into their own schema for how this would uh, work in terms of governmental power right. in their own country that's why the nebraska the had two seats yeah. and that's why Nebraska has two seats for 400,000 and you've got 20, uh, 20 million in California also with two seats. Right, and they say, well, it's not numerically representative. And the founding fathers would have said, of course not. That's, That's how we defined point. it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're, I'm getting off track. You're not. I'm no, but I think it, no, I think it's important. Um, on to Hausman though. Um, yes. Hausman, again, as we said, a, a poet, a scholar, eldest of seven, um, he had a far more middle, what we call middle class background. His father was a solicitor. Yep. Um, and he does go down the classical education route, goes to St. John's, Oxford, but he does not finish his degree, interestingly. And the reason for that is that he had no interest in philosophy <laughs> or, or, or history. Yeah, um, he, was, he was known as an absolutely brilliant classicist, one of the best classicists in the last 300 years. And that's not an exaggeration. I know a little bit about these matters. I'm no expert, but uh, there's some solid, tangible evidence for that reputation. 
So when he was moving up on his final exams, of course, uh, he had to, was quite full of himself. He loved classics. He loved literature. Uh, he was indifferent to history, which was another component of that big final exam. And he was completely indifferent to philosophy. Um, and he thought he could just wing it. He crashed and burned this most brilliant of students. And so he took, he took what is simply called a pass. Can you explain to us a little bit, Dr. Mass, and what that is? <laughs> a gentleman's pass? Well, I mean, he, he failed, basically. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not exactly sure. It's something that you would be awarded as an undergraduate uh, there uh, because of the excellence in, his, in one of the components there. Uh, in terms of examinations at Oxbridge, um, it's been reformed since then, but basically you have first year exams. Um, and he did rather well in those. But when he came to the, the exams at the end of his third year, which count for everything at that point, 100%. Uh, he was ill-equipped to, to deal with what was being asked of him, which is to present a fulsome and rather broad view of the field. And he had focused on the poetry and the, uh, the, the literary features of his education, the philology, which is a great thing to focus on in my view, but he did to the exclusion of anything that might entail ethics, politics, uh, or any of the other subjects. Now, I think this is a fair reflection on the ideals of the man we mentioned last week, Oscar Wilde. He's in that same, he's an aesthete, but he's an aesthete that's particularly drawn towards classics. And so even though he uh, goes uh, out of Oxford uh, without a degree, he eventually, because of the enormous number of publications, his interest in classical philology, he eventually is given a post at University College London, and then even uh, in, uh, uh, I think, back at Cambridge? Where does he go to after that? I think it's Cambridge. Yeah, I, think it's, I think it's Cambridge, yeah. Yeah, and so he's a professor there of Latin literature. And when we say professor, say something about that, Bill. Uh, professor means something different here in North America than it does in Europe. Yeah, in fact, it's kind of inverted. So in the UK, um, the, a professor is usually the chair of a department, as indeed uh, Houseman is. And this is the most exalted of creatures. So when we're talking about C.S. Lewis as a chair, he is a professor, and that's kind of a big deal. And uh, Tolkien, uh, as the Bosworth and Rawlinson chair of Anglo-Saxon, is a professor, and that's a big deal. And so in that sense, a doctor is actually beneath the status of a professor if it comes to pecking orders and things like this. Though obviously you would have to have your doctorate to be appointed a chair and therefore become a professor. Not Whereas back in, then, though. Yeah. No, that's true, actually. There's, it, it was less stringent in some ways. Uh, and the degrees meant more, I suspect, um, than they do nowadays. There's been a devaluation of degrees in terms of level. Anyway, um, whereas in North America, if you profess in the classroom, even if you've only got a master's degree, you're a professor. And that's something you can say over here. Um, whereas if you're a doctor, that's seen as a step up again, and you're, you're a, a rarefied creature. In any event, it's amazing that Hausman makes it to the top of that food chain because he was looking distinctly unpromising at a certain point. Some people say he did badly with those final exams in spite of his enormous promise because um, he had his advances had been rejected by another individual, a friend of his, Moses Jackson. Moses Jackson was a fellow student, a very good friend of A.E. Hausman, and A.E. Hausman, uh, quote unquote, fell in love with him. And when he made this clear to J uh, Jackson, Jackson responded that he could not reciprocate such a love. Very diplomatic of Jackson. Um, 
And uh, so people say that in despair of that rejection, he did badly on his final exam. But I think while that might have had something to do with it, we can only speculate and keep it as speculation. Nevertheless, we can measure the fact that he didn't bother reading his philosophy and his history as he moved up to it. That we can measure. So I feel on stronger grounds there. Hausman takes his pass and he goes instead in dejection into, quote, the civil service. And we're going to see uh, a number of individuals here uh, in England uh, followed this path. It's, uh, he was working, I think, if memory serves me, here in a patent office. Yes. Um, and he was working with, by the way, Jackson when he moved to that patent office. So, Pat, so Jackson is in everyday contact with him. Um, after the rejection and after they go back to mere friendship as far as Hussman was concerned. And he drudges away in patent paperwork as a mere clerk for approximately 10 years. Um, you're going to see the same thing here with T.S. Eliot. has to pay the bills and he does the most mind-numbing job to pay the bills. And it's an urban job. It's a bureaucrat's job. It's a secretarial job. Um, it's many things that, you know, you and I would consider some of the worst hallmarks of uh, 20th century life and one of the least likely places to produce art that's at least worth, li worth listening to, not with Hausman, because Hausman had a day job at the patent office, but by night, he becomes something of both a, um, a research and poetic hero. He loves writing poetry, and he also does not drop his classical studies. So much so that um, his critical editions of certain key classical works remain the authoritative edition in that area to this very day. So if you're looking for the critical edition of Juvenal, you're going to find the name Hausman in there because that's his critical edition. He turned that out. Uh, Lucan, Lucan's work is still, his, it's Hausman's critical edition that you go to as a classicist to get the authoritative edition. And this is all happening off the books He's not compensated for this kind of thing. It's his hobby. It's a labor uh, should, of love. Yeah. Yes, it's a labor of love. He loves this kind of stuff. And also running parallel with that, or maybe even interweaving with that, are his own poetic productions, which are like Hardy's. They are formidable, but because they are so mellifluous, superbly crafted, so beautiful. I, I think you can safely say Hausman's poetry is typically genuinely, movingly beautiful. To, in a different way and to a greater degree than Hardy's. It's not to denigrate Hardy at all, but Hausman, Hausman is one of my guilty aesthetic pleasures from the 19th century. Uh, I, I love the poetry of Algernon Swinburne. I love the poetry of A.E. Hausman. And uh, there's another chap whose name has just gone out of my head every now and again. Oh, no, it's because it's, he's French, Baudelaire. Um, so these are guilty pleasures of mine. I'll pick them up. I'll read them. I'll feel bad. Um, but then I'll pick them up again three months down the road. Right, right. Like so. Houseman is one of these characters, incredibly skilled. So the poems we're going to look at are from that first volume of his, uh, published in 1896, A Shropshire Lad. Now, Shropshire is uh, uh, ever thereafter associated with uh, Houseman uh, just as much as for Hardy. Uh, it's, um, is it Wessex? You would know better than I. You've lived in England. I yeah, well, it's it's Wessex and that area of the southwest England. Um, so here it's Middle England as much as anything, and uh, you can see something of the the West Midlands uh, represented in this poetry. 
you're very melancholic. You mentioned that already. Um, and uh, the theme, obviously biographical in some ways or autobiographical, um, of unrequited love there. So what we've got three poems here on the docket. To an athlete dying young, into my heart an air that kills and then loveliest of trees. Uh, why don't we talk, which one do we want to take on here, Bill? Well, let's go for the most anthologized of three here, though they're all in their own way good poems, which is to an athlete dying young. If ever I see any houseman reproduced in an anthology, it is almost invariably that one. So let me just read that one briefly, and then we can come okay. back and talk about that. I've got a scroll up here. There we go. The time you won your town, the race, we chaired you through the marketplace. Man and boy stood cheering by, and home we brought you shoulder high. Today, the road all runners come, shoulder high we bring you home, and set you at your threshold down, townsman of a stiller town. Smart lad, to slip betimes away from fields where glory does not stay, and early though the laurel grows, it withers quicker than the rose. Eyes the shady night has shut, cannot see the record cut, and silence sounds no worse than cheers after earth has stopped the ears. Now you will not swell the rout of lads that wore their honors out, runners whom renown outran, and the name died before the man. So set before its echoes fade the fleet foot on the sill of shade, and hold to the low lintel up the still defended challenge cup, and round that early laurelled head will flock to gaze the strengthless dead and find unwithered on its curls the garland briefer than a girl's. An athlete dying young. Mm. It is a celebration and a morning poem, in my view, of beauty. Uh, if Hardy is typified by his despair um, of all things, then Houseman is more meaningfully melancholic to me in that he mourns the passing of the beautiful uh, without particular hope for the other side. But uh, let's get your take on it. It's not a celebration of life. It's not a carpe diem poem. Nope. Uh, the athlete that they're carrying is dead. Mm -hmm. They're carrying him on chairs. Uh, they're cheering him even though he is already passed and can't hear the cheering. Um, he's, uh, in some sense, it, we could see probably echoes of Milton's Lycidas in here, uh, youth cut down in the prime of life. And so something of the pastoral eclogue uh, as the sort of uh, general ambiance here and a sense of mourning. But we don't really have anything that is uh, redeeming about the the sense here it's simply that glory does not stay on earth and withers uh more quickly than so there's a sense of the fleetingness fleetingness of life but not an enjoinder to therefore rejoice while ye may um yeah. going back to herrick's poem gather ye rosebuds we i think we dealt with that several uh, episodes ago uh but simply the transitoriness of life and um and, and with that, no consolation whatsoever. So that's the dominant um, theme here, really. Um, that, just simply that it's, it's um, 
not only appropriate, there's something to be um, um, envied about dying quickly because everything's going to die anyway. <laughs> so, it's, so that's what recommends it. Uh, and therefore we ought not to delight in it while we can, but rather simply to acknowledge that entropy, as you put it, is the way of all flesh. And therefore those things that die more quickly are to be recommended for getting there to the end more quickly. That's it. Yes, it is the most negative possible take you can take on the problem, which is that don't celebrate youth and its glory and its joys and its wonder and stuff like this. No, we're going to put um, the emphasis on the fact that you died before it really began to suck. Um, <laughs> and as you, well, and I are moving, it, yeah. as you and I are moving not so graciously into our status as grumpy old men, what? it's something which perhaps resonates. See? gets a response right away ah. whereas a younger man would have tolerated that jibe with in good humor oh um, really? i see <laughs> uh, it's no, very it, it's very very much antithetical to so the the uh the perennial or the sort of the time honored understanding of this is ecclesiastics three there for everything there's a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven a time to be born a time to die a time to plant a time to pluck up without which is planted etc that is not here at all. There's no, no that's sense about of balance. That's about appropriateness, aptness of certain phases of the human condition. This is not about balance. This is not about anything particularly positive in any form. Not at all. Um, essentially, he's uh, Hausman is back to that pre-Christian Beowulfian perspective. Life will destroy all that is beautiful and that's where you put the period in that line of contemplation. We're done. That's just it and accept it. Except worse. Therefore, we should celebrate that which goes there more quickly. Yeah. And so it's a, it, it, in, in a sense, it's an aesthetic drive towards nihilism again, this time driven by aesthetics more than pragmatics as it is with Hardy. Um, also notice that uh, Postman's classical predilections are informing some of what even a simple little English countryside poem here uh, is saying a it's very much in the spirit of a pastoral in the ancient mode whether you're talking about Virgil's uh, Georgics or Ecologues or Theocritus's idyls or something like that all of this is informing the thinking that is going on here so it's a contemplation of the death of beauty out in a rural setting, I was going to say a natural setting, but that's not quite right. Um, you have references uh, as he is uh, the, the, the shade of the dead athlete as it steps across the threshold into the realm of dead is greeted by the strengthless dead specifically, which if you've read your Odyssey, you know, that's a reference back to the underworld, uh, the dead who cluster hungrily around Odysseus as he goes down into that world, into Hades. Uh, are strengthless. Famously, they are the strengthless dead clawing with insubstantial fingers. That's something they can't reach. Um, you have other things going on here, which lead back to uh, classical mentalities, for lack of a better word. There's talk about the lintel. There's talk about the threshold. Well, if you've read enough Roman and Greek poetry, you'll know that that's highly symbolic in many Very different important. rich ways. Yes. Um, so classicism is informing a lot of what's going in, uh, on in here. He's also using tremendous numbers of figurative schemes, though not tropes. And he knows them well from his classics. Explain and the he, difference. I agree. Okay. 
Yeah, so figures of speech, which are unusual uses of language, get subdivided immediately into two broad categories. One of them is an unusual use of language, which changes the meaning of a word or words in it. Um, and these are called tropes. So a metaphor is a classic example of a trope. One of those words in there does not literally mean what it, it's being meant to mean in the actual metaphor. A scheme, on the other hand, is an unusual use of language, which does not change the meaning of any word or phrase in it. So uh, an example I use is the zoigma, where one verb governs two different objects. I shot the bolt of the door and then the police officer. Um, so it's important, I think, now largely from a craft point of view, that um, Hausman doesn't like tropes. And there are strategic reasons he doesn't do that, I think. But I, can, I don't have time to get into that with this kind of a venue. Uh, but he does use a lot of schemes, and they are classical Greek and Roman schemes. And, he, and more to the point, he has a feel for classical machinery, classical poetry, um, that in my mind is only rivaled by one other uh, thinker in the 20th century. He, in a very different field of literature, and that is J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien's instincts are magnificent. And you can tell Tolkien's instincts around this kind of nuance of language are magnificent because he deploys it in his own writing, in his own literature, and he does it well. So also with A.E. Hausman. Um, I would argue that he's using a lot of classical poetic machinery as well as many of the greats who we have uh, inherited down the centuries from Greek and Roman uh, contexts. So that's something I just want to sort of flag there because most modern uh, listeners, through no fault of their own, simply don't have that background knowledge to see what's on the page in front of them when they're actually reading an A.E. Hausman poem. These are gems. These are highly, highly polished gems. And Hausman is also a reviser, like Tennyson was. He would write a poem and then he'd fix it and then he'd fix it and then he'd fix it. He would sometimes spend years and years and years editing a poem. Also, as a side note to this, I should mention that um, he seems a very grave man. Uh, and in many ways, he is a very grave man. Um, a lot of gravitas and dignitas on the part of A.E. Houseman, along with that sad sort of... Um, elegiac tone. Yeah, the elegiac sadness um, that inhabits the man's poetry, and I would suspect his thinking as well. But having, sa having said that, there's a couple of points of his personality I should also signal here which is that, yes, he worked by night. He is, his work was of superb quality. You mentioned that he was a philologist, a lover of knowledge rather than an intellectual who loves the speculation and the questions and stuff. So he was ruthlessly correct about a set body of knowledge, and he made no mistakes. That's the real mark of a good philologist. You make no mistakes about an ocean of really important knowledge. And he is that. But if you actually know any real live philologists, You'll also know that they can be an enormously antisocial cutting individual. Um, if you've done something wrong, they will rip you limb from limb with mockery uh, and rail at you uh, and uh, drag out uh, humiliating examples of your mistakes and what have you to the, <laughs> to the cheers and the laughter of the mocking crowd. Um, Houseman was very good you at You speak this. as someone who is remembering an experience perhaps Bill. i'm remembering a lot of experiences <laughs> <laughs> houseman had a reputation if you made a mistake and in your work as a classicist and houseman was asked to review it or to comment on it and he if you located mistakes in there his response was famously vitriolic and mocking awesome. um 
he said at one point of one person, I could teach a dog, a stupid dog, how to edit classical text better than this person over here. Look at this stuff that he's done. And he would just tear them to, sh to shreds. So Hausman had a mean side, which is not surprising if you know philologists. On the other hand, his style became so famous in certain circles that many other poets began to imitate his style in order to mock Hausman. Hausman thought this was hilarious and he invited it at every turn. So there's a lot going on in the complicated brain of A.E. Hausman. He's not, a, he's not a simple figure and you can't sort of think of him in two dimensional terms. There's a lot going on there. Interesting. Um, do we want to mention any of the other poems? Loveliest of Trees, uh, mm, into, if we the, just, into My Heart? Well, Into My Heart's short. I can just read that very quickly here. Why don't you do that and then we'll conclude with that. Yeah. And uh, again, I, I quite like this poem. And this is again sure. from a Shropshire lad. Yes. By the way, our, our listeners ought to know, in addition, that um, a Shropshire lad became very, very popular, very famous, very quickly. This was a well-known anthology in Houseman's own lifetime. So this simple little poem, or seemingly simple little poem. Into my heart and air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires? What farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see it shining plain. The happy highways where I went and cannot come again. So again, you see a, a similar set of motifs as we saw into an athlete dying young. It is talking about a lost youth that is now forever separated from him. He looks back longingly to these, uh, these idylls of youth but he cannot access them. He is in a different country. He's, uh, but every now and again, he feels the cold wind uh, uh, of those days. He is reminded of these things. And that cold wind, that reminder, kills in certain complex ways. Yeah, there's a nostalgic tone to it, right? The pain of a lost home, but also the sense of uh, not delight in that, but a sense of, he is banished from the home. There's a, a paradise that has been lost, as it were. Mm -hmm. And um, it's that he's been banished from it and cannot return to it and cannot even delight in what has been lost. There's no sense. Again, it's the dark uh, tone here of the, of the whole uh, poem that strikes me. And it's into his heart. And it's an air that kills. Yes. It's an air that kills and kills what exactly kills him kills his spirit kills everything is it the entropy of which you already spoke um but again it, it's it has a cultural reference uh we've talked about this before where are those blue remembered hills what spires what farms are those these are the um cultural artifacts of previous generations, not the not the hills, but the remembered hills, the hills yes. that have meaning um, in the memory of his own people, these things of which he knows, but nonetheless feels distant from. So a sense of alienation, uh, and you spoke of that and the anomie that follows from that pervasive sense of alienation from the past, which he knows, and yet feels is forever lost from him. That is the land of lost content. That's interesting. So there's no contentment in the life that he leads now. It's not possible for him. It is shining plain, the happy highways where I went and cannot come again. So again, 
this bitter it's not bitter is not there it's not bitter it's resigned yeah it's again moving into the despair and nihilism we've already seen so much here it's the land of lost content remember he's a classicist so he knows that the object of the good life according to the classical mind was a form of contentment that you and i've discussed before oftentimes i'm generalizing now of course sure. uh, which is ataraxia this lack of desire because you have all you need and your needs are simple uh, they're intellectually simple but vital they're physically simple but vital um, and you you are now content so this is an ancient form of contentment and he is cut off from that so what is his current circumstances? Are you beset with desires and unhappiness and uh, things from which you run and things after which you run? What exactly does this all imply? Um, there was another thing you were gonna say there. What does the air kill? This is, I think, one of the clever little bits of the poem. And I think it's more than merely clever. I don't mean clever in a derisive sense, um, which is that one of the things it kills predictably is hope um and it kills it precisely in contrast to the hope or contentment he once knew had he not once known that he could not have his hope killed now so the knowledge of hope brings with the uh, with it the ability to kill hope hope in the past brings the ability to kill hope in the present uh contentment in the past br brings with it the ironic ability to kill contentment in the present um so you actually have to ex have experienced these things in order to have them killed in the current moment in which he finds himself. I had one student who wrote about Hausmann, talking about how Hausmann um, embodied so much of this agrarian ideal and that he lived close to the land and what have you. And the student was assuming that Hausmann was living in this beautiful sort of idyllic farm fields and country and would go to the village feats and stuff like this. And I said, no, 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 I, I, I hate to disabuse you, but no. Our boy here is living an urban life writing about the country. He is, he is separated from those blue remembered hills. Uh, and the student was quite dismayed and completely destroyed his impression of A.E. Hausman. So. <laughs> that was it for Hausman. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm afraid you're not going to find anything edifying here about this, aside from the beauty of the verse. Uh, there's no real, um, nothing to hold on to here, uh, other yeah. than the beauty of the lines. But the sense of despair is pervasive. And this is like these other two writers who's who, the, the beauty of whose poetry I so enjoy, uh, Algernon Swinburne and uh, Baudelaire. Uh, there's no hope in them. There is no hope whatsoever. Um, there's no particular purpose or meaning. But they are beautiful articulations in the darkness of that despair. And I suppose that's what attracts me to them. But I realize at the same time, as a more mature reader, of their limitations as such. And mm -hmm. so... You know, I, I won't dwell on them the way I will dwell on a Milton or somebody like this or T.S. Eliot. Okay, uh, well, I think we've given a fair uh, a treatment there, uh, as far as one can do that, of two great writers in one episode, a little, uh, little taste of the two, uh, as we've said, as figures that are falling between the Victorian period uh, and the modernist period don't really seem to fit either per se and yet uh, are are necessary is almost a foundation for what we'll find in the modernist period they're reacting against this sense of nihilism um, and we'll pick that up next uh, in our next episode with a look at conrad uh, specifically his heart of darkness uh, his most famous novella um, and we will see some of the same 
some of the same features there for sure, but also some new things. Um, but I think uh, we'll have to pick that up next time. Do you have anything else to say, Bill? Is that it for now? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could give uh, our listeners a bit of a break from the steady diet of... No, you don't. Yeah, you're right. I'm lying. <laughs> um... <laughs> so now we're going to torture you and get to where our hearts really are. And That's right. Our great and... I remember reading, I read Conrad, I was forced to read Conrad, I read The Heart of Darkness voluntarily um, as an undergraduate and thought this is, uh, this is very interesting, I'm not sure what I make of it, but it's very, very interesting, I see what the talk is about, mm -hmm. um, and then my professor forced me to read another much lengthier text by Joseph Conrad, which was The Secret Agent. Oh. And I remember reading The Secret Agent and thinking to myself, what is wrong with you novelists in this period it is just a pure epic um super powered um roller coaster of despair and nihilism um i could not believe that a novel could depress me so much while simultaneously boring me so much um which it did anyway we'll unpack all of that here uh in our next podcast right and as so always as always thank you very much to our listeners and we will see you next time i'm dr masson with Pi Today with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bill Friesen. See you next time. Take care, everyone. Bye.